community. Buenas tardes. Thank you for joining us for the second episode of the We Got We Not BP podcast series. Joajifkat Oklanidos, Fusolgi Pachidoish, Adolwe Egan Yifelija Amalegados. My name is Ramsey Sprague. I'm son of the Bird Clan. I belong to the Egan Yifelija Eco Village Collective. I use they, them, he, his pronouns was born in Dulac, Louisiana, raised in Arlington, Texas. I currently call both Mobile, Alabama and the Egan Yifalija Eco Village in rural Coosa County, Alabama, my homes. This podcast series is produced by Both as Possible Collaborative, and today we're exploring the implications of how, despite this year being the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, the contemporary resistance to fossil fuel exploitation of our lands, lungs, and loved ones began 500 not 50 years ago, and how this collective history of trauma and resilience informs our efforts to guide a just transition away from the fossil fuel economy for all peoples today. I'll be one of today's three Native co-hosts. Alito, good afternoon. My name is Monique Verdin. I'm from the Homa Nation here in the Delta. My pronouns are she and her, and I call the banks of Bulbuncha at the lower end of the Mississippi River where the salt from the Gulf kisses the fresh and brackish estuaries of these water wetlands um, that I call home. Uh, I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge all of the ancestors who have made it possible for all of us to be here today, wherever here might be for you. And, you know, we wanted to take a few seconds to of silence to recognize the Gulf of Mexico and all the watersheds and ocean basins around the world that connect us and a few moments of silence for the traditional caretakers of those lands. And then there's the, the zydeco uh, <laughs> that you're hearing from the ancestors of indigenous communities. So it's so much. We're going to pass it off to Sheree. Hi, my name's Sheree Foytland. I use she, her pronouns. I'm very glad to be here today. I call many places home, but right now I'm in South Rain, Louisiana, uh, right here in the Cajun Prairie, uh, helping with COVID relief. I'm also a founding member of Another Gulf is Possible, and I help with the Loi La Vie Resistance Camp out of Indian Bayou Food Forest. Um, I get to be a guest host today here for We Got We, Not BP podcast series. Today we'll be conducting four interviews with, inter with experts in the lived experiences of indigenous and black resistance and resilience from the Gulf from Atakaba, Ishak territories, all the way to traditional Muskogee territories in Alabama. And we got DJ Cairo providing native rhythms for this episode. We'll also will allow each of our participants equal time to introduce themselves and their work to us. And then we'll allow for them to have a bit of crosstalk uh, with each other before opening the conversations for questions from our audience. And our first um, first guest today is Jeffrey Derenberg. <laughs> I love Zydeco music. Yeah, he's from Zydeco country, um, is an enrolled member of the Tribal Council, uh, enrolled member and uh, a member of the Tribal Council for the Atakapa Ishak Nation of Indians, a writer, a speaker, an artist of, of all sorts, um, and also the editor of a really incredible zine, Bulbuncha is still a place, indigenous culture from New Orleans, originally from Baton Rouge, um, received his PhD from the University of Louisiana Lafayette and has been a writer in residence at one of our favorite places, a studio in the woods, which is an art campus of Tulane University. Jeffrey, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, Monique, uh, thank you so much for having me on. Um, one of the things you and I were talking about recently is uh, the creation story of the Ishak, which is what we usually call ourselves. Some people call us Atakapa. And our creation story, like many creation stories, shows what we value most. And in ours, we walked out of the Gulf of Mexico 
somewhere near Lake Charles, Louisiana, or as we call Lake Charles Tutul, which means tail of the lake in our language. And that indicates something very important that the Gulf is where we are from. It is where we have our origins as a people. Our people has lived within 50 miles of the Gulf of Mexico for probably the last four and a half to 5,000 years. Uh, we live from about Vermilion Bay over to Galveston Bay, so there in Louisiana and in Texas. Yeah. And many of us work on the Gulf of Mexico, something we have done from time immemorial, whether that be collecting shrimp to dry and trade with other indigenous nations, or in our present time, many of us uh, work in the seafood industry still, or some of us work in the petrochemical industry. My own father was a retired oil field worker and many other members of our tribe work in that industry. At the same time, the industry is one that we often have an odd relationship with. It does pollute our waters significantly. When I think of even places near Lake Charles, Louisiana, where many of our tribal members live, there is a place we have fished there for thousands of years called Sokte in our language, or uh, Bayou Dend in English, and that is currently a site that has extensive petrochemical pollution and is a major cleanup site, and it will probably be cleaned up in one way or the other for the foreseeable future. That is something we have as great concern of ours, whether it be that or whether it be uh, petrochemical incursions into the Atchafalaya Basin. These are places that are sacred to our people, places where we have lived and hunted for quite a long time. Uh, one of the places that's really dear to me is a place near where the Vermilion River, a river we have lived alongside for thousands of years, empties into the Gulf of Mexico. And there's an area there that's a shell midden, a place where we would eat ranger clams and discard the shells and we would shape them into a giant mound about 300 yards long. And right through the middle of that mound where we would break our pots and covered in thousands of pieces of pot shirts, there is a shipping channel, a ship channel to bring people out to work on oil rigs, cutting straight through the middle of this beautiful sacred structure of ours, a place where we would do ceremony. And that is sort of a living metaphor for many of the things that have happened uh, for the sake of the oil industry. Uh, we have had to see many aspects of our culture disrupted, whether it be pollution from fishing or not being able to use certain of our sacred lands. Our path of resistance involves at the present time reclaiming our culture, being sure to keep up with our traditional fishing and hunting ways, and even our family relationships. Uh, we never, you never just see one Indian, as I like to say. Like, um, and so what, part of what we do is we try to keep together our cultural work. And I also work on our tribal language, Ishakoi. All of those are ways of resistance against a culture that has never really valued us, that has always seen us as people for exploitation, whether it was our land wanted, or our bodies wanted, uh, we do have a legacy of being enslaved by other people who have come here as colonists. And so that is the work I do is working in that sort of cultural revitalization, which is I think is one of our best opportunities for survival as indigenous people because our cultures are cultures of living in harmony with the environment. So the more we promote those cultures, the more people will have attitudes and tools for living in sustainable ways in this world now. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Uh, I have the immense pleasure of introducing uh, someone I've known for quite some while, some time actually, Sherelle Parfait-Dardar, who lives in Chauvin, Louisiana, and is traditional tribal chief of the Grand Bayou Dulac Band of Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw. She was an advisor to the Louisiana State House Bill 660, which is Act 102, which passed and established the Louisiana Governor's Office of Indian Affairs Native American Commission, to which she was elected as first chair. She's an active advocate for coastal restoration and preservation, development, utilization of alternative energy sources, community resiliency, education, and human rights. 
She's a founding member and current secretary of the First Peoples Conservation Council of Louisiana and was a partnering host for Idle No More Gulf Coast Gathering back in 2013 where I met her. And thank you so much for being on the show today, Sherelle. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you so much for having me. I, I am truly honored to be here with all of you. Um, wow, when you hear somebody else talk about what you do, it's kind of like, whew, okay. Um, I'm really and truly blessed to um, have been chosen as chief of my people. And, you know, we live on the quote unquote front lines, uh, the coast of Louisiana, where we experience uh, just astronomical amounts of land loss every single day. And, um, you know, a big part of what I do is not only protecting and preserving our culture and our identity, um, it's also trying to ensure that we can thrive and continue into the future. Um, and that, that is not an easy task to do for, for many of us uh, who are leaders or advocates and um, now, I've been chief now, it's, it's going to be 11 years, and it's, it's truly been a blessing. And any chance that we get to speak and speak our truth, you know, shed light on the issues, um, and try to bring, bring forth unity, I, I think the better off we'll all be. You know, we need to work together for the greater good. I agree. Thank you. And um, Sherelle, you were new in tribal leadership back when the Deepwater Horizon disaster happened. Can you take a moment to explain to us what it was like to lead your tribe's response to, to the disaster as a state, but not federally recognized tribe? That was actually quite scary. I, I'm going to tell you, you know, being, um, being new into leadership and, you know, it, they really didn't give you a whole lot of information to work with. Everything was trying to be hidden, right? They were busy trying to protect themselves um, rather than protecting the environment, protecting the people. Um, it was really difficult to navigate. You know, we had to look towards outsiders who could help us understand what happened and, you know, try to help us navigate the entire system um, to which, you know, we were able to become part of the cleanup crews. Uh, a lot of our fishermen um, were more than happy to be a part of that. You know, they, we're all stewards of our environment. And if anyone has uh, the knowledge of the waters and the lands of our coast, it's gonna be them, you know, and they also have the utmost respect, um, you know, so, it, it was difficult. I can definitely say that. Uh, were we fairly compensated for all of the damages that were done? No, of course not. And, and we're still suffering from that today. Um, it's, it's a slow process. It's a slow recovery. And, you know, if you watch any of the news, you can still see that there's still leaking going on out there. Um, you know, almost on a daily basis and the, the seafood, you know, the aquatic life, um, is, is definitely still impacted from that. Um, you know, but if, if I can say any lessons that I, I learned from having to go through that is don't give up, keep asking questions. And, you know, when one door closes, just keep pushing for that next open door because you're going to be able to get answers from somebody. Thank you, Sherelle, and thank you for that. And you sure were a great advocate for your tribe. I have to say, I was there and I remember. So we appreciate you. Um, and next, we're going to go on to Monique for the third interview. Yeah, wow. Um, <clears throat> so many uh, memories of those times, uh, the BP aftermath, and knowing that we're still vulnerable. Um, and also knowing that resistance um, here in the Gulf South and in the Global South, um, you know, looks different in different ways, but it's all rooted to 
the same um, to the same tree, uh, family tree, as my grandmother would say, of all of us um, fighting for our self-determination. Um, so thank you for sharing uh, to all of our participants for being here. And I'm really honored um, to introduce Akil Bakari. Um, we're moving in a bit of an eastern direction today, going from Atakapaw country uh, to the east. Um, Akil Bakari is a member of the Jackson chapter of the Malcolm X grassroots movement. Um, after serving as national secretary and national information coordinator for the organization um, previously, he was born in St. Louis, Missouri, um, so tied to the Mississippi, uh, and spent his formative years in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, he's been a member of the Mac Malcolm X Grassroots Movement and the New African People's Organization since 1989, and also served as director of the Malcolm X Center for Self-Determination in Jackson, Mississippi where he helped to initiate community-based programming, um, youth mentoring, cultural development, personal community-based security, academic tutoring, youth sports teams, uh, legal clinics, and political action strategy forums. Um, so honored to um, have you with us today. Akil um, is also the producer and co-host of Voices from the Grassroots and is a community current affairs radio and internet, which is a community uh, affairs radio and internet broadcast. He's worked in the social movements for the release of political prisoners in the U.S. for reparations for Africans in America against genocide with environmental justice campaigns and in the struggles for self-determination and human rights by oppressed people throughout the world. Akil, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I really appreciate uh, being invited. Uh, I feel very honored to participate uh, in this this uh, web broadcast today, and um, obviously here in the South, Gulf Coast South, and the Global South, uh, the work that we have done as a grassroots movement, um, as you can see, has been for a pretty extensive period. Um, we have uh, worked with indigenous populations throughout our period of time here, not only here in the South, but across the American empire. Um, the impetus in our philosophy is self-determination, whereby nations of people decide what their destiny should be and how to create a better world for folks to be their best human selves. So again, I'm extremely honored to be a part of this, this uh, webcast today. This is our first time really meeting um, and was reading this really great article um, interview that Noelle Dilla, who's a um, collaborator with Another Gulf, and we'll share that, um, that article um, out through our channels. And just, um, you know, in these times that we're in, um, you know, especially with the COVID pandemic, but, you know, living through this cycle from, um, yeah, we can go way back, but, um, but just thinking in the last um, 15 years, right, from Hurricane Katrina to BP to now, um, and also, you know, the, the, um, the strategies that, uh, have taken time and relationship building and and organizing and I loved um, you know the from the house to the block to the community to your city to your nation you know whatever that means so-called state um, and so I just I'm curious you know if you can offer some um, some reflections or you know what you're thinking about during these times as to what is um, what is really needed and how can um, individuals and communities work for self-determination um, and for the, the health and well-being of our communities um, in the times that we're living in right now? Well, obviously, um, white supremacy and the um, nature of capitalism forever remains the same across time and space. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a redundant, repetitive destructiveness whereby, you know, each and every day for a lot of people, 
are um, times which are not normal. You know, it's interesting you hear in mainstream news where people say, oh, we just want to get back to normal. Well, these times of strife and stress for people like ourselves and our communities, this is normal. It's the abnormal is the normal. And um, the whole concept of our philosophy is, as you stated earlier, is first organizing your household, then your neighbor, then your block, then the community beyond your block, and extrapolate from there. Uh, these times remind us, and it's, you know, we're, by we have to create to the best that we can self-determined structures of survival. And what does that look like? Very, very, all, everybody on this panel understands that. Um, all of us are creatures of the land. We understand that the land is sacred and all life stems from the land. And as you, as the land provides for you, then you take care of the land so we can continue to provide for you. What does that mean? It's about being able to control your shelter, your food source, the protection of you and your people as you move through these times. Uh, it's, a re again, as I stated earlier, a recurring cycle with the destructiveness of capitalism and white supremacy and this whole idea of uh, profit over people. And as we are seeing, this, this pandemic is um, disproportionately, as it always does, any, any kind of disaster always disproportionately affect those of us who have bared the brunt of um, capitalism and white supremacy, not only in the American empire, but around the world. And so as we have uh, tried to put forth in practice is those things, those life-sustaining skills, growing your own food, securing the land that you stand on, building your own structures, and creating apparatuses whereby you can protect yourself. Um, those things we think are key as we begin to, or I would say begin to, continue to resist. In order to resist, you have to be able to maintain yourselves, your community, and very key in creating allies who also bear the brunt of this over 600 year nightmare called America. Wow, thank you so much, Akil. Um, really looking forward to continuing conversation and um, 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 wanna you know, say big thanks to Noel for in the introduction. Um, um, I'm honored to know you and um, to learn more about your work. I, yeah, I think, I think we have met, I think we met, if you were in New Orleans, Jaisha, at some sort of film, um, some sort of film film she was doing. And I think I met you there, if you were there. I'm yeah. Paul. Getting a little older now, so if, I, if you weren't there, please forgive me. <laughs> yeah, and I'm looking forward to, to the next time we get to share real real time and real space together, but, um, but also grateful for the virtual channels. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, um, Ramsey, um, hand, the, hand the mic to you to introduce our next guest. Thank you. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Marcus Briggs Cloud. Marcus is a language revitalizer, scholar, and musician. He's current director of the Iganyi Felija, an, in, an intentional indigenous eco-village community based in Wiogufka, Alabama. Consisting of Muskogee persons who have been returned to their ancestral homelands after 180 years of having been displaced, Iganyi Felija's residents practice linguistic, cultural, and ecological sustainability. Marcus is a graduate of Harvard Divinity School, uh, and he's currently a doctoral candidate in interdisciplinary ecology at the University of Florida, where his work intersects liberation theology, linguistics, ecology, race, and gender identity. Uh, so very pleased to have you with us, Marcus. Uh, could, you, could you 
just open up briefly and explain the vision behind uh, the Egan Yifa Lija Muskogee Eco Village project? Yeah, uh, so what you have to เอ่อมาเลยกระโดดจะกระโดดเดือนหัวดาลเกลกีพุจิโดเอชโมเอนโคเนบัลกินสกอวะกีโดเอชมันดนมันนิตชิริดาเอนปุนาโฮเอดว
revive the society that the language once functioned best in. And that's um, one inherently premised on intimate relations with the natural world. And so that um, is where this concept of an eco-village emerged. Um, and uh, we, so, so we started a language uh, immersion program before we were able to find land. Um, the, the, the vision was um, uh, the ancestors were revealing, you know, we need to go back to our traditional homeland because we have this inherent ethical responsibility to care for the land as Muscogee people. Um, and we didn't choose to leave our homeland. We were forcibly removed from it. And somebody needs to be there not only to care for it through biophysical stewardship, but to cer ceremonial spiritual stewardship too. And um, so um, we, we uh, established, um, eventually got uh, a land in Coosa County uh, one of our ancestral village sites. Um, we're on um, 577 acres and um, we um, started this language immersion program where we speak to the children exclusively uh, in our language uh, from early morning to evening. Um, I've never spoken a word of English to my own children since they were born uh, and, and they're both speakers. Um, I, but, but I also learned in the process that, you know, it's not just about language revitalization. Um, that, you know, we have to have healthy people, for instance, our elder language bearers, we, we only have 29 speakers left east of the Mississippi and, um, you know, almost half of them are on dialysis. And so uh, people are dying in their 60s and, and taking the language with them. But these are dying, dying the, the illnesses, the chronic illnesses that they're dying of are really preventable by better dietary management. So I realized, uh, okay, we need to, um, we need to have healthy food. So we have an aquaponics system and um, uh, where we grow healthy vegetables, but we take uh, suspended material from the water column and we flush uh, nutrients from fish waste down into the greenhouse to grow healthy food for the community. Um, and we're doing natural building. We're an off-grid community. Um, and uh, so, so natural building, for instance, uh, we chose uh, timber framing where we harvest all the all the uh, timber from the land. Uh, we select species based on population densities in, in a particular basal area. And then we have ceremony with the trees and fell them. And then we skid them and debark them and mill them all on site. And uh, we create natural joinery through um, mortise and tenon joinery. And then um, this prevents us uh, from uh, high embodied energy. And technically it can be a carbon negative uh, process and uh, we don't have fossil fuel consumption or carbon emissions involved in the process. Um, earthen plastering, earthen floors, uh, rainwater catchment, uh, some solar and geothermal technologies, uh, composting toilets, biodigesters, um, and we're an income sharing community. So everybody contributes to uh, the eco village uh, with a role in exchange for lodging, a $400 stipend a month. Um, and, and food, of course, and, and you know, this uh, modest way of living, this kind of minimalist way of living constrains our ability, uh, the small stipend constrains our ability to participate in, in capitalism. And so, um, you know, I, all this, um, all this uh, started off as kind of like a, a vision to um, keep our language alive, but um, it's to say, you know, that if, if you want to keep your language alive, you not only have to speak to your uh, children exclusively in the language to um, from from a pre-verbal stage to make fluent speakers but you have to know how to grow beets and native pumpkins for community health and save the seed uh, you have to generate revenue from regenerative ecological practices you have to clean poop from a bucket instead of wasting potable water to send your poop to an unknown place you have to toast acorns that you harvested from the woods with little kids and toast them on a rocket mass heater that you um, that you built and you have to mourn the loss of a sturgeon when she passes, but you have to honor the sturgeon when you harvest them uh, with a song, honor them with a song and a dance when you harvest them for food. Um, and then uh, you have to, to uh, quit buying frivolous plastics and turn to the sun every morning and give thanks for the day for its energy to power your LED lights. And most importantly, uh, you have to cultivate tons of love and compassion so manak magirit sayaji but madi gostos mado amabuheji bachka mado marcus shri uh shall we move into taking some q and a among our guests we've had a really nice conversation 
Yeah, it's such a pleasure to have all these great people in one spot and to be able to try to talk to each other and to build off of each other. Now that you've had a chance to listen to each other's uh, good works a little bit and, and some understanding, we were wondering if you had any questions amongst each other, amongst yourselves. And I know I have a question for you, but uh, and feel free to take it or feel free to ask another panelist a question. But I'm just wondering, we have all these youth coming up and uh, wanting to join in the movement and be a part of this. And I'm wondering what you would tell someone now that you now that you're a veteran, uh, what, what you would tell some people that are just getting started and are trying to make a difference in their community or in their in their life. For instance, uh, you know, if I wanted to find out more about my language, uh, where would I go? Where would I start? How did you all start working into that? And then, you know, we have, what, four different nations here. And four di that means four different stories around language. But uh, again, don't let me, don't let me put you on a, on a theme. Well, um, I, I'd be interested in hearing what Marcus has to say. Marcus uh, grew up speaking his language. I did not. The last uh, real speakers of Ishakoi, my tribal language, uh, died around 1970, and it was probably last spoken in the 40s. And it's been a good uh, bit of study I've done. I've written things in Ishakoi. I participate in online groups. And I guess one of the first things you could try to do is see if there's a published dictionary of your tribal language, and then see if there is an online group that is doing work on it. And you'll find some people who'd be probably more than happy to connect you to resources. Uh, and the third thing I would say is, even if you don't really speak the language, try using a couple of words and using them every day, or even calling the place where you live by its original name. Um, so for Ishakoi, I always tell people to use Yiltol, that's like, hello, good day, and Hueo, which is thank you. Those are important things. And you just start by using one or two words like that, and eventually it snowballs into something else. That's me coming from the standpoint of someone who did not grow up speaking their tribal language. Um, I could uh, jump in here. I, um, yeah, I think it's a different approach for every community based on the number of speakers you have or don't have. Um, it's altogether different case for a language that's dormant. Um, so if, if your language hasn't been spoken in a long time, I encourage you to look at um, the work of Jesse Littledo up at um, Mashpee Wampanoag with the Wampanoag uh, Language Reclamation Project. Um, I also, um, well, for, for communities uh, that have extant uh, language uh, speakers that are still living, uh, we maintain a pretty, um, a pretty strict uh, no English policy. So we charge uh, when, when we're in a language immersion se session, which is most of the day, we charge a quarter uh, for every uh, English word that's spoken, you know, it's the only way to keep that polluting language out um, of the building. And we found that that was uh, an effective way. So, so there are two rules that you have to have in, in language immersion work, uh, according to my philosophy. Um, and the first is no English. Uh, and the second is um, that you have to have a lot of love. And uh, so we started our children um, as pre-verbal babies and um, they all are first language speakers now. Um, and they're, they're all competent, uh, culturally competent uh, speakers. Now the whole impetus behind the eco-village being language is um, based on the, the, the premise that if you're traditionally from an agrarian society, um, that you have to be engaged in sustainable agricultural life ways. Otherwise there's no host society in which your language can flourish. Um, so that looks different for every community based on their traditional practices, but we have the verbiage for all the things that we do in agriculture. And so, for instance, um, we steward a herd of bison. Um, and so every day that's a, a topic, a theme of conversation. What's the activity of, of the bison or the chickens or the fish that, that we steward? And um, it gives lots of a room for things to talk about and it, it connects us to the natural world. That's where our so our conversations have to be centered. Thank you. Um, I want to make sure that we bring up the um, using the United Nations protocol, the Biloxi Chittimacha Chakta type has partnered with the Alaskan North Slope native tribes to challenge the U.S. response to relocation. So I kind of wanted to know from each of you, but starting with you, Sherelle, um, 
the needs of your community due to climate change and climate induced sea level and ocean warming and poor coastal management planning. What's happening today with those legal challenges and how are each of you dealing with climate change as it comes? Well, uh, of course, <laughs> we're still facing all of those same challenges every single day. You know, we would, we would have to have some, a, a serious overhaul of legislation, you know, because currently, uh, most of the legislation that's written is in favor of uh, oil and gas, you know, and extraction, uh, extractive practices. Um, you know, these, these laws are not human rights based. They're not environmentally friendly. Uh, they're definitely not indigenous friendly. That's for sure. Um, you know, so a, a lot of our work, and, and here's the thing, you know, because we aren't federally acknowledged yet, you know, this, we've been in the process for over 25 years now. Um, we have limitations, right? It's easy for the court to say, well, you know, we can't work with you because you guys aren't federally acknowledged, right? So that's a way for them to be able to push us to the side. So what we've had to do is try to work with other groups, you know, universities. Uh, we've been able to start working with uh, USDA. Uh, you know, we've had to work with uh, US, uh, UUSC. You know, different, different advocacy groups uh, building our allies, you know, so that we could have a voice and so that we could make sure that we have a seat at the table. Um, currently, we are still waiting for a response uh, from the UN Special Rapporteur, and it, I, I know that things have gotten delayed since all of the COVID-19, um, you know, but we're still in prayer and we're still very hopeful, you know, that we can get a response soon and that it's moving forward in the right direction, because what we need is accountability and responsibility. Um, yeah, I guess the resettlement was sort of the last straw for all of us. You know, again, we are, we constantly get these uh, doors shut in our face. Uh, we were all uh, in unity with uh, Chief Albert and his people for their resettlement. This is something that was driven by the community. It was put together by the people. And uh, they had experts that came in to help them be able to draft this plan you know, and it was submitted. It won the resiliency competition. And of course, once uh, OCD got the money in their hands, things started to change, uh, which is, uh, again, uh, not surprising, but quite disgusting. Um, you know, so it's, it's the same old, same old, um, you know, which was one of the, one of the, uh, I guess, final straws behind the, the complaint. Thank you. That really, that's really enlightening. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, there's a couple interesting questions. Uh, one related to uh, detribalized youth. And this could very easily apply to people of African heritage. What, what do people, uh, indigenous people, uh, what do the y'all panelists think about uh, where detribalized youth uh, should be looking for leadership, for guidance, for uh, connection? Um, I could just uh, briefly, um, I think I understand what uh, the question is meant when they say detribalize. I assume it's like, uh, you know, people that have indigenous ancestry but aren't sure what uh, uh, specific people they come from. Um, I, I think that's what they mean. Anyway, um, I. Uh, I think lots of folks are disenfranchised in this way, uh, especially in what's colonially known as Latin America and persons of African descent, of course. But I think uh, a lot of the, the decolonization paradigm in the minds of a lot of people is that um, non-Indigenous peoples are going to disappear and Indigenous peoples are going to reclaim land and, and uh, regain indigeneity. But uh, I don't see white folks getting on boats uh, back to Europe tomorrow. Um, so, so I... I think that we have to look uh, to, to, to having good neighbors. Um, and if you don't know who your people are, um, even, even Europeans that uh, have indigenous origins, um, 
you, you run the risk of uh, appropriating indigenous cultures that are extant. And um, to avoid that, uh, people have to reconnect with the natural world in which they live and they have to form communities and they have to go and fast and, and they have to um, develop rituals um, in the context in which they live. Uh, just like, you know, a Hopi rain dance uh, is for that bioregion. It's not for here in the Southeast um, because it, it activates all the elements of the natural world in that space. That's where the knowledge was given from. And so um, I, you know, I'm, I'm probably a sort of a, a cultural purist in some ways, but um, at, at the same time, um, I, I think that uh, peoples, wherever they are on the planet, are going to have to reconnect with the natural world in community, not as individuals, but in community, in order to um, uh, revive these rituals that reinscribe uh, an ethical consciousness of appropriate relations with the natural world. I think one thing some people could do is just to, again, try to learn about which people they are descended from but also if they are looking for some connection, uh, one thing I have find really handy is foraging. I try to forage plants that I know that my ancestors ate here. And then it really becomes indigenous when you forage with someone else uh, because foraging for yourself isn't an indigenous thing. Uh, and so I've been happy to show people how to harvest and eat things like bull thistle and wild chicory and what good places there are to harvest blackberries and how to, you know, how you can identify, you know, even something really basic here, like a pecan tree, which a lot of people might not have ever gathered their own pecans, even though they eat them all the time here. Uh, things like that, that uh, are really good indigenous ways to practice that are sustainable things. And of course, nowadays, um, as a survival response are very valuable. I think that's one of the things that Akil was talking about that I found really valuable, that the, the necessity of communities developing strategies for survival is essential, uh, especially in our times. Is there anything you would add, Akil? I would wholeheartedly concur uh, in all the discussions that just preceded. You know, it's imperative that we do. We see it, you know, in front of us whenever there is uh, any sort of crisis then there's this, um, you know, these announced pronouncements of food shortages or not being able to um, go to the grocery store and, and, and get this, that, and the other. And as we try to, you know, sometimes successfully and some other times unsuccessfully, is the idea that is indigenous to all of us is uh, being um, self-sufficient in feeding yourself, particularly here in the South, as the, the ground is fertile. And um, these practices of growing your own food uh, spans deep into the history of our cultures and is just a re-remembrance and transferring that information to present generations who uh, may not have been exposed to those times where um, our people, I can remember very vividly um, as a child with not only my own family, but families in our neighborhoods, everybody had gardens. Everybody had collective sharing of food. If we had greens, somebody else had tomatoes, or somebody had cucumbers, and how the, the um, planters, larger planters, would come through the neighborhood with um, with their food stuff and, and vegetables and fresh vegetables and, and fruits. And as he was speaking, I remember in my, in my time where in our communities, we had pecan trees and apple trees and pear trees and persimmons and figs and all of those natural things that were there. And as we harvested together, which helped sustain us as a community during those periods. And so it's um, imperative that we understand that and devise broad strategies to reincorporate that into our lives. Thank um, you so much. Yeah, no, um, just, you know, we have so many more questions, um, recognizing that there are more uh, podcast needs and conversations um, that need to be had and just super grateful 
um, you know, to, to have all of our guests here with us today, offering um, so many different perspectives. And um, I keep hearing this, like, uh, strategies for survival and from everyone, um, whether it's language, um, gardening, uh, protecting traditional territories, um, you know, this is, um, you know, we're, we're all in the struggle together and um, you've all given us all so much hope. So thanks again to you, Jeffrey Derensberg, um, Chief Sherelle, Parfait Dardar, Akil Bakari, Marcus Briggs Cloud. It's um, been a real honor to have you all with us. Um, just want to also mention that we have another podcast uh, coming up on the horizon, um, not um, this coming Monday, but the Monday after, so two weeks from today, Monday, May at 4 p.m. Central Standard Time. And this third episode um, definitely is the continuation of this conversation, Land, Water, and Food Sovereignty in the Gulf South. Um, so, you know, the, the, all of the voices that we heard today um, are echoing um, what this conversation will be about. And also want to give a big thanks to DJ Cairo um, uh, for offering some music for us. And, um, and we have one more song um, in store for us. And then Ramsey will be back with uh, another announcement. <laughs> The cotton, the sugar, the people, the people, the people, the people. As the germ travels faster than the bullet, they harvest the mountainside, protect the crops, herd the cattle. The people, the people, the people, the people, the people, the women and children were separated from the men. They divided us according to the regional rules of their minds. The violence of arrogance comes into the air, that's also the Jewish nature of the so uh, we, we want to thank all of our panelists and thank the audience for joining us. Uh, we will be back on Monday, May 18th at 4 p.m. Central for the next installment of the We Got We Not BP podcast. And stay tuned today for a post-podcast action opportunity coming up at 6 p.m. Central uh, when the Carrizo Camecrudo Tribal Chair Juan Mancias will discuss the urgent need to take action against the Texas Liquefied National Gas Natural Gas Export Facility uh, live on Facebook on the Another Gulf is Possible Facebook page. Uh, just a reminder, we will release this episode as a podcast next Monday. So anyone that tuned in late, you'll be able to get all the content uh, in just about a week. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you very much to all of our participants and our panelists. And uh, we wish you and everybody else uh, a very safe couple weeks until we see and hear you again. Thank you. Peace. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you, everybody. Gracias.